All right, if you guys would please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking at Jude, the only chapter, verse 20 and 21. You know, it strikes me that as we stand to read God's Word, it's for an interesting reason, and that is looking at John chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about the Word, the Word being there at the beginning. Then it conflates the two as with and was God. So whenever we stand for the reading of God's word, we are standing in the presence of God. So let's read. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You may be seated. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, that you are an awesome and powerful God that can get your words, even being on paper here in front of us, two millennia later and more with the Old Testament. Lord, we worship you today and we ask, Lord, that you open up our hearts and our minds to receive all that you have written today and help us to be more like you and be a constant encouragement to others in the same. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's easy to approach these verses from a wrong perspective. We have a tendency as just human beings, and we read something, we want to understand, what is this something saying? And it's funny that, you know, verses, when they were written in Greek and Hebrew, uh, they didn't have punctuation. So it's a little difficult maybe to tell which is a sentence here, which is a complete thought there. But we just naturally just read through it and take this first sentence, this uh, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, that almost sounds a little bit like you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get things done. And I, I kind of thought that was Jesus' job to build up our faith. So that, that, you know, puzzled me. Praying in the Holy Spirit, you know, he just says that a little differently than we hear elsewhere. And I guess I'm not sure what praying in the Holy Spirit is. So it just makes me confused. But then I read a little more. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, daggone it. I thought that's what Jesus did. I guess I have to do that. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Okay, that's not terribly confusing, but maybe I don't understand all aspects of that either. What did I just read? But this was our verse of the year for Rivercrest. And how many times have we heard sermons on this before? Once? Twice? Three times. I think we may be struck out if we're having me do it again. I, I don't know. No. I, if there's anyone who's striking out, it'd be me. But um, you've heard this before. The reason why we're repeating it, because there's a lot here. And it can be confusing if you just think about these verses by themselves. But I want to look at them at, uh, from a, a slightly new perspective. Not saying that it wasn't done before. And I hope I'm not in any actual new perspective, but I want us to think about them a little bit differently today. Um, what I'll be doing is going back and considering them in light of the entire book, which is a whopping 25 or so verses here. Um, so without further ado, let's get into it. You know, as I was preparing for the sermon this week, I came across a great Winston Churchill quote. I'd rather argue against a hundred idiots than have one of them agree with me. 
Oh, wait, that, that wasn't one. Um, he had another one. You know, um, the, in the British Parliament, the, the first lady who was in Parliament, um, she said to Winston Churchill one time, um, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. He said, if you were my wife, I would drink it. <laughs> I bring up Winston Churchill because he lived in a, a difficult time. The world was changing quickly. And he had to stand for things that his countrymen were willing to let go and just kind of let happen. Um, he actually has some really important quotes I'll get to later. I just thought he also has a wry sense of humor, and I enjoyed it. So I wanted to share that with you. Um, as we approach Jude in these verses, he just writes things a little bit differently. He doesn't have a bunch of other books written in the New Testament, so we're not used to the way he writes. But he's saying the same things we've always heard. So let's look at it this way. Um, Jude says in verse 3, he wants to share with us about salvation. But as a traveling missionary, he's become concerned with the things he's seen. He's being troubled by them to the point that he says, it's necessary. I have to talk to you about contending for the faith. You look there. Get your Bible out. Look at verse 3. Um, it says, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this actually already helps me clear up one thing that we read in verse 20, your most holy faith. When I first read that, I thought, wait a second, I have to have enough faith that it's called holy? Build yourself up in your faith? I have to do this. But he talks about your faith here as that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's saying the message of God, all that we believe as Christians, what we now call the Bible, at that time, roughly AD 60 to 65, when Jude was writing this, they didn't have it written and canonized and completed in their complete understanding yet. So they were just talk about what was delivered to them from God through the apostles or Jesus, the word of God. That's what he's talking about. So in verse 20, when we read that again a little bit, building up your most holy faith, it's not talking about your personal level of trust in God. It's talking about the faith that we believe together, the word of God. So that already helps me out right away. That's great. Um, but then it says contend for the faith. You know, it's interesting, and I'm a little bit of a nerd sometimes, and I looked up some of these words, and contend is the only time that it's written there in Greek in the New Testament. So you can't compare it to other things. Again, he just writes about things a little differently. He uses a little bit different verbs, a little bit different things and uh, instructions, but they turn out to be the same. If you think about contend, what does that mean? Does anyone know what the word contend means? Any youth here want to, you know, get brave? Want to show, ooh, you know, that was a hand up, but it didn't mean anything. Anyone want to say what the word contend means? Help me out. Oh, you're good Presbyterians. You're very quiet in church. What's that? Yes. Amen. He's telling us to fight for this thing, our faith. You could take it as to struggle for, to fight for, to vie. All these things get at it. We have to be struggling for our faith. That's an interesting thing. I love the way he says that. We don't hear it spoken quite that way very often, but it's written throughout the New Testament. Um, 
let's think about this for a little bit. If we're to be a contender, what's the most common thing you, th- you hear when you hear contender? For me, I heard someone say it, boxing. It's boxing. About the only videos I really like to look at on Instagram is boxing videos. I don't know why. I don't watch it in real life. I've never been to a match, but I love to see those short little seconds where someone KOs someone else. I don't know. But in boxing, there are contenders, and there are people that are just seemingly up there, and I don't know what they're doing. You, to be a contender, you have to be a threat to the person who has the title, to the person who has a great record. You... You can't be up there. Let's, let's picture me and Mike Tyson. When I was a kid, Mike Tyson was the man in boxing. I'm not sure he had a lot, of, a lot of other great attributes at the time, but he was a good boxer. Let's say today, he's 56 years old, I'm 40. If we were to get in a ring and fight, I would wake up about 30 seconds later. I would not be a contender. A contender is someone who is all about whatever it is that they're contending for. So whenever we're told here by Jude to be a contender, to contend for the faith, we have to be strong in it. It has to be something we think about every day, something that we're excited about, something we know about, something that we almost are a part of. And being that the word, this this faith that we have delivered to us by God, that the word is God, it's like we should have a relationship with it. If you have a relationship with something, you're with it all the time. You don't take a little six-day rest between times you hear from it. It's something we do all the time. It's almost like we should have a, a five-for-five plan. Just five minutes a day and read a little of the New Testament. You'll get there. That's a great plan. I love it. So to be a contender, you have to be strong in it. It almost reminds me of verses like pray without ceasing and be ready in season and out of season to give an answer for the hope that is within you. It, it sounds like you're a contender, like you would know about it, that you're strong in it, that you're ready with it. It even reminds me of another great Winston Churchill quote, never give up on something that you can't go a day without thinking about. I'm going to say that again. Never give up on something that you can't go a day without thinking about. You could apply that to a lot of things in life. It's a nice general thing. If you think it's important, Don't go a day without it. That might even be a good litmus test for the way we treat our faith. Could we go a day without thinking about our faith? Now, I bet you've already answered that in your mind. And before anyone starts to beat themselves up about it, because we live busy lives, and whatever happens, and we don't always get in the Word every day, I don't want you to hear the things that Jude says and just look at your past and just be judging yourself on that. I want you to hear this as something to be calling yourself forward to. It's a vision for what we can be. And it's actually it's going to be a lot more than just you picking yourself up by your bootstraps. And I'll get to more of that in a minute. But that's a great way to think about it. You know, thinking about Winston Churchill and the time period he was in with the World War II, 1940s and all that, um, basically what happened at the beginning of the war was Hitler was coming in and taking over sections of various countries, and people were just appeasing him. Okay, if you just stop there, we won't fight you. But if you do more, we'll fight you. Well, we found out that was really too late. He kept going and going, and pretty soon, it was pretty much just England fighting them alone. 
And there are many people in the English government, in the military, who are saying, he, he's, he's just, he's winning here. We're not. Let's just, you know, agree, make a treaty. Let's just maybe stop fighting. No one else is helping us here. They felt alone in it. But Winston Churchill would have none of that. You see, he had an indomitable spirit, an ability to communicate to others in a contagious way. You know, he wanted to say things like, well, he didn't want to, he said, we shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we will fight in the beaches. We will fight in the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We will never surrender. You can hear his passion just reading it in the text if you read it online. He was not going to let England give up. He was saying, we're going to contend for who we are as a nation and for what Europe has been. If he cares so much about that to the point of not stopping, never giving up, and the way he talks about it, never give up on something you can't go a day without thinking about, if he could have that desire and that zeal for the way people run a country and have a national pride, why can't we have that sort of zeal, energy, and ability and desire to never give up, to contend for our faith. Look at verse 4, and we'll find out why we have to contend. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're told to contend for the faith, we're told why we have to contend. People have crept in. If you take a brief look back at verse 2, he says several things to let us know who he's talking to. He's not talking to everyone sitting in the pews. Beloved, he's talking to those who are in Christ, those who have salvation, those who understand what that means. But throughout history, there have been people that have joined with God's people and who do not know God, who have not received repentance, who have not received forgiveness. What he spends in verses 5 through 16 is talking about lots of examples of that and how it's hurt God's people. So that's why he says these people have crept in inside the church and have perverted it. Ungodly people. If you think about that, that was really about 30 years from the time that Christ was on this earth, that he lived here with us, died and resurrected and went into heaven. 30 years. If Jesus starts a church and within 30 years, there's already people who have crept in, ungodly people seeking to subvert what it was and what it was about on big issues about saying that, oh, it's okay, we can sin because we have grace. Hey, we can do what we want. And, oh, you know, Jesus, he, he may not have really been... He might not have really been like, you know, born of a virgin. Maybe he didn't really do miracles. Maybe he didn't really rise from the dead. You know, we hear these things and we hear them today. They were said throughout history. But if he had to fight those just 30 years in, don't you think there are some of those things today in our own churches? You know, I think about our own denomination or just Presbyterians in general. I go back to the 1880s and 90s. Pretty much every clergy member 
uh, every ordained minister in the Presbyterian churches in America would have said orthodox things. Orthodox is right knowledge. We would have been good reformed people. We would have espoused the, all the teachings of the Bible. But it was around 1924, there was a, a large group of them, almost 1,300 Presbyterian ministers who got together and refuted some really basic things that sound just like what he talked about in verse 4. It said that Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin. He didn't really do miracles. They said that mm, this inspiration thing, it's not really making sense to me. And you know what? It was, a, it was a black eye for the Presbyterians, and there was those that began to fight against it. But we'd let it get big to that point, and we let it get bigger. By 1973, the PCA was formed for the one reason it seemed like that denomination, the, P the Presbyterian Church at large, was unwilling to say that the Bible is the highest authority and that everything in it is true. That Jesus is exactly who he says he is. That he was born of a virgin. That he did miracles. That he rose for your sins that he died for. Showing that you can have forgiveness based on his goodness. That's where our church was founded. And you know what that was? About 50 years ago. Are we still contending for the faith? Contending for the faith, let's think about that. Let's think on just denominational levels. Do you know what your denomination is talking about in the General Assembly? I'm not thinking of anything, by the way. Do you know what committees are happening about, what the topics are for? Do you know what decisions are being made? Do you know what decisions are being made even in your presbytery? I would, I would really encourage you to get involved, to know what's being said. How can you contend for something if you don't even know the fight is happening? Look around you in the, in the larger church, not just our denomination. Let's think about that. Your friends, when you're, you're, you know they're Christians, do you help support them in good biblical theology? Now, I'm not saying go up to your Baptist friend and start arguing about when to baptize. That's not the point here. That's not what I'm saying. But when you hear people from a, another understanding that the, doesn't hold the Bible as the highest authority, encourage them. It can be done. Um, thinking about that um, mainline Presbyterian church, I was very good friends with a, a pastor. He, he's passed away at this point. It's not that we weren't friends anymore. And we had a really interesting conversation where I was at the time studying in seminary, learning about how the canon came to be, all the copies of copies, all the great evidence that we have for confidence in the authority of the Word of God based on physical evidence. And he said, yeah, I agree with that. I said, oh, okay. Well, how much do you agree with? He said, I think the Bible is 99.9% .9 accurate. I said, well, which is the 0.1%? And we had an interesting little conversation. But basically, it became a moving target. Whatever didn't suit became that 0.1%. So I said, at the time, all these things were happening. State laws were passing, and it was the topic of the day. You know, practicing homosexuality. He said that because he saw his friends and their kids or his kids' friends or whatever, he saw people that claimed to be Christians and were good people, said, hey, I'm a practicing homosexual and it's fine with God. Um, he said, I, I don't think that's a sin. I said, okay, uh, bear with me a moment. When, when you were a young man, what, were they, what did they teach in Sunday school? Well, it would be a sin. 
when you were in high school, you were a smart guy. He's a very smart guy. And I'm talking about on world-type organizations. He's sitting on boards that I've never even heard of. And he said, yeah, I believed it was a sin. When you went to college and then seminary, what did you believe? It well, was a sin. When you were a young pastor in your 20s and 30s, even 40s, this guy was like 80. And what did you believe? He, it was a sin. The Bible taught it. Okay. So now that you're an old man and our culture says this thing, what changed, you or the Bible? He said, oh, I never thought of it that way. I could speak to him openly, and we had a good conversation about it because I could speak to him with love on our friendship. That was me contending for the faith. I'm not holding myself up as an amazing person at this, but any one of us can do it. I didn't have to go into a bunch of things I learned in seminary. He already knew all those things, actually. I just talked about what I believed. And God gave me the words to say. What Jude is calling each of us to do is to just be bold and stand in your faith. It does require us to be in the word. It does require us to have a a, a life in this, to think about it every day. But let's go on from there. You know, let's pretend it's 1924 and those 1,300 Presbyterians stood up and said that, these ordained clergy member. What if we stood as a church and said, no, that cannot be. You guys must lay down everything you've said or you're out. What if we stood there? We wouldn't have had to break away as a denomination in 1973 if people would have stood for it firmly and completely. I'm sure some did, but it takes all of us, not just your pastor in the front when he goes to presbytery, not just your elders, but all of you. If you are all there, you're going to see how much a difference it can make. Winston Churchill said this one time, one ought never to turn one's back on a threatened danger and try to run away from it. If you do that, you will double the danger. But if you meet it promptly and without flinching, you will reduce reduce the the danger by half. Never run away from anything. Never. You know, where Winston Churchill is warning us in a general way, Jude is warning us specifically. So again, he spends uh, verses 5 through 16 going through various things that have crept in and and hurt God's people. 17 through 19 is kind of a recap and touch on verses 3 and 4. By the time we get to 20 through 23, we see they're closely connected back to 3 and 4. So this contending for the faith, he's now spelling out, and this is what it looks like in verses 20 and 21. So let's read those again with a new mind for it. This This is contending for the faith. But you, beloved... That is, you who believe in God and you believe his word, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So now we know that it's not you just taking care of your personal trust in God, but it's building yourselves up. You know, I kind of think that's why we gather together to hear God's word. I kind of think that's why we gather together in community groups It's not just you by yourself. It is us together. 
Whenever I'm with my friends and I'm going through a hard period in life, they can encourage me. And it's really interesting because I can do that same thing to them. But together we're stronger. Together we are defending our faith. We are building up ourselves when we gather together. I have a couple really good friends and I hang out with them frequently. We like to do silly things like play board games and such like that. You know what invariably happens when we get together? We end up praying for each other. We end up sharing things about our faith, struggles we're in and giving it to God. That is building up our faith. And it's not me doing it to myself. It's us doing it to each other. That's the picture that we're given. We need to be active in it. We. Don't sit there and beat yourself up and say, I haven't done a good job at this before. It's about calling you into a new vision for it. About us doing it for and to each other. So building yourselves, that plural, up in your most holy faith, which is the teaching that God gave us through his apostles, and praying in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so as I, I looked at that, I basically just had to look at a few other verses. Here's 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Keep on praying for those who possess the Spirit. Okay, that's a good little reminder. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Romans 8, 26. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Okay, so it's not necessarily something that I have to really be like practiced in to make it sound really special. Because I first read this, praying in the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that sound like, praying in the Holy Spirit? Is it any different than what I'd ever done before? Well, Ephesians 6, 8. 18 really helped me. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. All these verses talk about praying with the Spirit. That's the Spirit's job. We join Him in that. We are joining with God first in the Word, building yourselves up. Next, by praying about it. You see, Prayer is not this thing where I, a little slot machine in the sky that I ask God for things to make my life better. Well, sometimes I do that. But prayer is not supposed to be that. Prayer is supposed to be, I think John Piper said something like, a, a wartime order, communication is saying, God, we need reinforcements here. What's your plan for this? Show us the way. So when you're contending for the faith, you're reading his word and interacting with our Lord, the creator of all things. The one who truly has the power to make a difference in places you don't think it can make a difference. So we build ourselves up by being in the word, by encouraging each other in our most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit, that's step two. And then I got to verse 20, uh, 21 here. It said, keep yourselves in love of God. I realized that wasn't a capital K. That wasn't a separate thought. It was, it was continuing on. So building yourselves up, praying to the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in love of God. When you're building yourselves up and you're praying in the Holy Spirit, that is keeping yourselves in the love of God. And again, not in the sense that you're taking Jesus' role, that he holds you in his hand, but when you're praying when you're building each other up and you're talking about the, your faith, you're telling each other scripture, you're in the scripture, you're praying together. As we're doing this together, you start having a greater sense of being in the sphere of love of God. You start getting it more. You start walking in that more. 
You see, if we just kind of out of left field, not having done the first verse, the building yourself up in the, in the word, in the praying in the spirit, if we just kind of skip those steps and go try to write to contending for the faith and just start arguing with someone, they're not going to feel any of that love. They're just going to feel attacked. So when you're doing those things from verse 20, that's when you realize that you're already in the love of God. If you said, Lord, I'm a sinner, I need you to be my Lord and Savior, and I receive you today as such. You are in the love of God. What if we as a church, both when we are gathered together, when we're in homes together, when we're at work, when we're in our own home, when we're out with our friends from outside of church, what if we had such a sense from our time in the Word and praying together, we had such a sense of God's love for us. We had spent so much time there that not a day could go by that we couldn't help thinking about it. That when we did talk with someone who did not know Christ, or even, even someone within the church who sure seems not to know Christ, what if we walked in that confidence that God loves us constantly? No matter what we've done, that would give us a greater power than when you're working on your own. The greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart. The second greatest is to love your neighbor. This is just saying these sort of things in agreement. He's saying them differently, yes. But they're in agreement with the same old things you've heard. That's why he wrote it a little bit differently. To make you think about it. What was Jude saying? Am I doing that? And I had to say, I I want to I step up my game here. This is a great encouragement to me. Let's finish out these last few verses, but I want to think about this. It says yourselves. We've talked about it being all of us together. Let's not lose sight of that. We all hear it all the time that we're, we're in this together, that we are a community, that the church is not a building, but the, all the people. But we just can't help thinking about default. Because when I brought this, these first things up, I know that there were a number of us who said, oh, I am not doing that. We didn't consider, are people doing it to me and have I done it to others? We were thinking, am I good enough? Let's really rebuke that idea. Let God deal with that in your heart. But let's look at it together. So when it says, waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, this is kind of like military orders. If praying is a military thing of calling in the superpower to take care of that, that stronghold, that wall, that, that enemy that you can't, then waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ is kind of like military orders. Yes, I'm in the military. I think that way a little bit now. Um, you can get two types of orders. And for the past 20 years, um, We've been getting orders that say for nine months, 12 months, 18 months, you're given a time period. You're going to go over here and be deployed in this area and do this thing. During World War II, when it was the whole world and we were fighting for freedom and big things in that level, you didn't get a nine-month deployment. You didn't get a year deployment. You got, you're going over here until the war is over. This is the end of our orders. 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, I don't know if you know any older folks who have really contended for their faith, that have really fought for things in their life, whether it be on a denominational level or whether it be on um, a personal level with the people they're trying to mentor, whatever it may be. But when you meet an older person who says, I just can't wait to be in heaven with my father, and that doesn't make sense to you, that might be a little bit because you haven't been contending for the faith day in and day out because it hasn't been your focus. Because it is difficult. It takes a lot out of you. It's saying this is going to be your entire time here on earth. You might get to retire here in America at 50, 65, somewhere in there. But you don't ever retire from this calling, from this work. This is a lifelong thing. It doesn't stop whenever you stop going into an office to get a paycheck. This is something that you give your entire life to. You don't have to have a lot of great abilities. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to, you don't have to be perfect. That's literally God's job. But you have to give him your life. That's what he's calling you to do. So this contending for the faith, he's saying, join me in the things that I do. Do it by being in my word, by encouraging each other, by praying together. Do it out of love. When you recognize me every day and you spend time with me, you will feel that love, perceive that love, and understand it in a way to usually give it to others. So, basically, this whole thing sounds a whole lot like Ephesians chapter 6 to me. I'm going to read through that. And I want you to hear it in this contending for the faith type light. Uh, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, withstand the evil in the day, and having done all to stand, stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which can be extinguished, could extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you're an amazing God. You are truly above all words. You are truly above all things. Yet you say that you were the word and you were with the word and you were there from the beginning. Lord, you give us your word. You give us yourself. You did it on the cross. 
Lord, you do it constantly for us every day. Lord, renew our spirit, renew our faith. Lord, make us to be people who cannot help but to be contagious with our beliefs. That we cannot help but, Lord, to stand and encourage each other. That we cannot help but to pray together, Lord. Lord, give us a zeal and desire to contend for the faith every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.